So this afternoon we're going to look at how God uses the Bible in our lives. Our catechism teaches about this in question 89. It refers to the Bible as the Word, and it asks us how the Word is made effectual to our salvation. In other words, how does God use the Bible to further our salvation, to help us initially to come to Christ and then to grow in Christ? So let's confess the answer to this question together. It's it's question number 89. How is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So a passage of Scripture that speaks about this very thing of God's Spirit using the Word in our lives is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So please turn there and listen as I read it to you. This is God's word, and I'll begin in verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, and read through into chapter 2. So uh, we're going to find an interesting thing here that there's many things that are parallel with what we looked at this morning as well. That seems to happen very often, but it is the case today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring it to nothing and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that are, have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord? that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Oh, may God add his blessing then to the reading of his holy word. Well, this passage shows that the Bible has a very different effect on some people than it does on other people. It's very clear here, isn't it? Paul summarizes this in the first verse I read, verse 18, where he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So that's a very different reaction. What does he mean when he says that it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved? Well, he means that it does much more than simply give us information. But don't get that wrong. Uh, It does give us information, and that's actually a very important thing that the Word does. We should never think when we say that that's not all that it does, that it doesn't also do that. It's a very important part of it. He tells us that the message that is preached is the message about Christ being crucified. You need to know the facts about that. You need to know that He was the Son of God and that He came to save sinners and that He is able to save us. He had to become a human being and that that after living a life that pleased the Father, something that no one else was able to do, he had to be punished for our sins so that we could be forgiven. You have to know those facts. He was crucified as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You could know that Jesus died and rose again and believe that. But if you don't know that he did it to take away our sins, it will not benefit you for salvation. You need to know that the Father accepted his sacrifice and showed that by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus commanded his disciples to tell the whole world about this. And that is what Paul refers to as the message that he preached, the preaching of the cross. But there is much more than just imparting information from one person to another that Paul says, is involved in the power of God for those who are being saved. There must be the power of God for anyone to be saved. This message about Jesus being crucified gets a hold of us and it gets into us so that we can believe 
And so that it changes us. It, it has, for it to do that, it has to have the power of God in it or with it. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says that it is the power of God and the wisdom of God for those who are being called. So we hear the message about Jesus being crucified and it powerfully transports us into Christ's kingdom of righteousness. We might be able to compare it with the way that God used his word when he created the world. The power of God accompanied the word of God at creation. I can say, let there be light and nothing happens because the power of God is not there. But God said, let there be light and there was light. So you have the power accompanying. He spoke and things came into being at his word. We are dead in our sins. And when he speaks or when his word speaks about Christ being crucified to save sinners, the message causes people to live. It gets into us and we believe it. We are restored to God through it. We are called into a relationship with him by that gospel. We are forgiven and we're renewed to live for God. A person who, ha- who is dead in sin, a person who had no interest whatsoever in God or in Christ, becomes a lover of God and a follower of Christ. Some who grew up with the message have life from it all their days. They are resting in Christ and have forgiveness and live for God. But others may grow up hearing it all their days and never know the power of God to salvation. It is to them an, a message that has no impact. In either case, so it is the power of God and it is the wisdom of God. You see, sometimes it brings destruction because the gospel says whoever does not believe will perish. And that is just as powerful a statement and a true statement is the promise that whoever believes will be saved. So there are those that Paul refers to as the Jew and the Greek here. And for them, the same word, the same message that is powerful to those who believe is powerless in bringing them to salvation. As Paul says in chapter 1, verse 18, the same message that is wisdom, the wisdom of God and the power of God for those being saved is foolishness to the Jew and the Greek who perish. The designation Jew refers to the religious man of Paul's day. And not just any religious man, but a religious man that has the word of God. The man who has the true scriptures and who now has the message of Christ. For us today, it would be like saying the one who is called a Christian. He gets to church and he has his, he he goes to church and he has his Bible with the message about the cross and it is powerless in him. He goes to worship, he prays and he sings and he reads the Bible and even tries to live an honorable life in the community. He wants to help people and he wants to be a good person and he figures that God will accept him because he is doing the best he can. But the gospel has no power in him. That man may be influenced by the Bible in in certain ways, but there is no real power for conversion. He has a form of godliness, 
but denies its power. Paul says that the particular problem of this religious man is that the cross is a stumbling block to him. That's what it is to the religious man, to the Jew. It is offensive to him, as we saw this morning. It is an embarrassment, as it were, something that seems wrong to him, something that seems unacceptable in his eyes. The very idea that one person should die for another, he says, is not, a, is not a just way for someone to be saved. How could they cover for wrongs that someone else has done? The very idea that God should even require such a thing at all and not be willing to just accept people is offensive to him. Why can't God just accept me without all of that business about the cross? It's a scandalous thing in his eyes. In his mind, it is okay to have Christ for an example, someone who stood up for what was right and who was willing even to die for it. He's happy to have Christ in that way. But when when he thinks of Christ in the way that he's revealed in the gospel, in the cross, that's an offense to him. To suggest that God required his death to atone for the sin of others, that's something that no noble religious person could accept. You see, he will have none of it. So that's the religious man. Then there is the, the Greek. He is the secular man. He is the one who takes pride in his own wisdom. He is the man of reason and philosophy, the man of science and understanding. He's not into this notion of God revealing things to us. That is unscientific in his mind. He prefers to figure things out rather than having them revealed. He is a scientist rather than one who listens to the oracles of God. That's his own self-assessment. Paul says that for this man, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. The typical Greek in Paul's day was quite convinced by his philosophy that God would never become flesh. That was utterly ridiculous to reason Why, how could God, who is spirit, become flesh? All people of learning in that day knew that gods were spirit and that it was silly to think that they could take interest in that which was material in order to be crucified even for them. And even more silly to think that a spirit could become flesh. The whole thing was laughable to men of wisdom and reason. That was the prevailing notions in their day. Of course, the notions will change from one day to another. But in verse 21, Paul explains that the world did not come to know God through wisdom. That's not how it happened. The Greeks, with all their wisdom, did not come to know God. But because they trusted in their own wisdom, they thought the cross that could save them and change lives was foolish. Of course, today... The philosophy that the Greeks were so sure of is no longer believed by the establishment. But there is a new wisdom that also regards the cross as foolishness because of man's supposed wisdom. Today, it is evolution that causes them to claim that science science makes the revelation of God foolishness. Or the philosopher who can't get past the problem that there is sin and suffering in the world. The Greeks didn't have so much problem with that, but they, today's philosopher does. That, that God, and that God, if God created the world that as Christians profess, then uh, how could you believe in a God like that? 
but sometimes they cannot help but see the power of the gospel to change lives. And this is very difficult for them sometimes when they look at history with any kind of under, even just a cursory understanding. I love the article that Matthew Paris, a UK pol- politician, wrote in the Times, which he entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. I have shared with this with you in the past. In the article, he says, Now, a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous, enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of the secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. So he's saying the gospel has more power than any of the other programs that he himself was conducting. He says these alone, these programs alone will not do it. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. Now, he didn't think it was the power of God, but he saw that somehow it changed people's heart. He said it brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. So the only way that men would change so that they began to work and provide for their families with all the aid that was given to them and not just to receive the handout and not ever go and work was when they came to believe in Christ. And he would see that this community is flourishing and this community is not. What is the one thing that's different? These believe the gospel. They have come to believe in Christ and these do not. So the same message, the same word is the power of God for salvation to one But to the Jew, it is scandalous, and to the Greek, it is foolishness. So what is it that makes the difference as to when it is the power of God or not? Is it not, it is not a difference in the message. It is certainly true that there are some false ministers who do not preach the cross of Christ, and therefore their message does not have power to save. A lot of them fall into the category of those Paul refers to as the Jews. They are ministers and they teach and preach, but they do not preach the cross as the power of God to salvation because the cross is either offensive or scandalous to them. They will talk about it, as we saw, is Jesus dying for a righteous cause. That's the way the church I grew up in talked about it. But they did not talk about it as Jesus dying to atone for sin, because that would offend them. But Paul is not talking about the wrong message here. He is talking about the different responses of people to the true message of the gospel. It is also not a difference that he's speaking of here in the way that the message is preached. Paul makes it very plain that he did not come to them with slick oratory or clever techniques for preaching the cross. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So he didn't take on the oratorical techniques that were current in his day to move audiences. 
that kind of thing that has been done all through history at various times. That's not what makes the difference. All he did was declare to them this simple message. He did not resort to those things, that, uh, nor did he follow the method of putting on religious plays the way the Greeks did in those days. That was the popular way to convey a religious message was by a play. He was not like those in our day who used music to try to get people in a certain frame of mind or who used techniques to stimulate, stimulate people to a response. He was simply there with the awesome responsibility of telling them what Jesus did and what God revealed about what Jesus did for salvation. And because he used no special techniques, all the glory went to God. Never underestimate the power of the gospel. It is truly miraculous. We have had people over the years who have no background at all. All they did was start coming to church in the middle of a series from Deuteronomy or or something like that. And somehow the Spirit of God used it to work in their lives. Simple preaching is done in demonstration, Paul says, of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, not in the techniques or the oratory or or such things, but in the power of God. That's what does the change so that we look and we say, how can this give life? How can such a message give life? It was so wrong of Charles Finney to develop psychological techniques to get people to respond to his calls to, to come to Christ. Or even Billy Graham, who had people planted in the, uh, the big auditorium when he had the call to come forward, people that were planted there to go forward so that other people would be stimulated to go too, even though these people weren't really going, they were just going to, to, to manipulate and get other people to respond. And uh, it, it was, it, it was uh, um, apparently we're told that, that less than 1% of the, the ones that professed in those times continued in the faith. Now, having said that, we ought to praise God for those who did profess. And Graham, I think, was a sincere Christian man. He was one of the one of the ones that was never, you know, involved in any scandals or things like that. His preaching itself was simple, which was good. But the techniques he used did not demonstrate the power and spirit, the spirit and power of God to change lives by the word. We don't need to resort to techniques that God has not appointed. If we do, then we say, here is the method that will bring people to God. No, the method that brings people to God is the preaching of the cross. So you see, it was not that there was a different message or that there was some special technique or way that the message was preached. That's not what Paul is talking about. So what is it that makes the difference? It was God's spirit that made the difference. The Holy Spirit is the one of the three persons of the Trinity. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit is the one that works in us with power, life-changing power to transform our lives. He uses the word preached, the preaching of the cross, to bring about transformation. He takes the message And he brings it to those whom he has chosen to save so that they cannot deny it and they cannot resist his call. It comes with power. It comes with conviction. It gets into them. 
They receive it and they cannot get it out of them. They know that it's true and they cannot walk away from it. And then the message itself changes them. It gives them life and it transforms them. Paul explains that the message itself is one that comes from God. Chapter 2, verse 7, he refers to it as a mystery that God has revealed. He compares it to the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that we get by looking at things and trying to figure them out for ourselves. And he says that salvation by the cross is not learned in that way. It must be taught by God. Even if you saw Jesus die and then you saw him buried and rise again with your own eyes, you would not know why he did it unless you were told. A mystery in the Bible is not something that is hard to figure out, but it is something that God must reveal to you for it to be known. His way of salvation is certainly like that. You couldn't just figure it out. Even if you saw Jesus die and rise again, you would not say, oh, that was for the salvation of sinners. It would not register to you. We, we would naturally have never expected God to do such a thing. But even when the message is proclaimed, we still have a problem with receiving it. In verse 14, Paul says that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. If anyone is left to themselves, the Spirit can be preached to them again and again, but it will never get through. Even when they hear it, it will either seem scandalous or foolish. The message will not be accepted and it will not change their heart. But when the Holy Spirit works in us, then the message has power in our lives so that we believe it and we trust in Jesus as our Savior. In verse 10, Paul says, but God has revealed them the things that God has done for us in Christ. He has revealed them to us through his spirit. In verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from Christ, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. And once you have received the message, you can't see it any other way. Christians are a stubborn people, aren't they? They're very stubborn about the gospel and the message of salvation. Because when God's Spirit has taught them, they find it hard to understand how other people can't see it, even though they once could not see it, perhaps. You feel like you're telling people something that is so obvious. But without the work of the Holy Spirit, even the most brilliant people in the world just cannot get it. It does not get through. So you see that it is not a difference in the message or in the way that it is preached that causes people to receive it, nor is it a difference in the people to whom it is preached, because the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It is rather the Holy Spirit who causes us to receive the message of God or the Word of God when it is preached to us. He is the one who, by His almighty power, melds the Word into us, so that we receive it and we believe it. Apart from his working in us, we would never have believed it. As I said this morning, all the glory goes to him. Now let's look at what God's spirit actually does in you when he brings the word to you. The Catechism gives us a great summary. First of all, it says that he convinces and converts sinners. 
That's exactly what Paul was talking about in verse 9. He says, But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. We never could have dreamed that God would die and do what he did for us on the cross. It is really absurd to think that he would provide eternal life for sinners like us through the suffering of his own son. It's a thing that would never have occurred to any one of us. But that's exactly what he has done. And as it says in verse 10, God reveals these things to us by his spirit. He reveals it, in other words, so that you can receive it. The spirit both convinces and converts through this message. We are convinced that we are such sinners as the word says we are. In John 16, Jesus says that the spirit will convince the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, he shows us that we are truly ruined by our sin, that we are far away from God, that we're under God's judgment, his wrath and curse. He brings it home to us when he brings the message of the cross into our hearts. We come to see what sin did to our Savior. We are taught by the Spirit of God. We receive because the Spirit works. So at the same time, the Holy Spirit convinces us also that Jesus really did atone for our sin on the cross. That whoever believes in him really will be forgiven. The Holy Spirit himself teaches us that we, we are said to have been taught by God, so that we are said to have been taught by God. No one has to persuade us because the Spirit does the persuading. He opens our heart to believe like he did with Lydia when Paul preached. Now, that doesn't mean that preachers should not plead with people and beseech them to believe. But the pleading that is effectual is the pleading of the Holy Spirit so that a person will believe. When we are convinced, the Spirit converts us so that we do the only thing that we can do with such a Savior uh, for such sinners as we are. We come gladly to be saved. What else can you do when you realize your plight and when you realize the way of salvation? If you are convinced by the Spirit of the truth of that, you, you have no choice really, do you? In a, in a sense you do because we're so very stubborn. But the very thought of any other way once you learn the way is preposterous to you. How could someone be saved once I know the way that God is appointed for us to be saved? We leave our old way of life and we cannot and we come to be his disciples, to follow him and to trust in him, to take us to heaven. So that's how the spirit brings us to Christ initially by means of the word. But his work does not stop there. The Holy Spirit continues to use God's word to build us up after we have come to Christ. The Catechism says that he builds us up in holiness and comfort through faith. Let's look at that. Building us up in holiness means that he enables us to live for God. He uses the word to enable us to live in a new way. Our lives that were ruined by the fall, we were dead in our sins. Now, while it's wonderful to be forgiven and to have hope of eternal life and to be brought to Christ and reconciled to the Father, having come into God's house... We must now learn to live for God. We must learn to live in his ways. Great to be forgiven, but now we need something else to be done. How can you ever learn to live for God and actually live for God? Well, the Spirit uses the word 
also to make that happen, not only to bring you initially, but to carry you forward in your faith. He takes the commandments as we hear them preached and he writes them on our hearts. That's what God promises to do for us in the new covenant. Hebrews ten sixteen. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. The Bible is full of teaching about how to live. And Jesus said that he, that he wants us to learn to observe all of his commandments. He said in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So that's a function of the, the word of God and the preaching of the word. But he, he, he told his disciples to teach all who come to him to observe these commandments. When they do that, then Hebrews ten sixteen tells us that God's spirit works in our hearts so that we learn to obey. In Ezekiel 16, 27, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So you see, the spirit is the one that builds us up in holiness. He's the one that sanctifies us by his power. The word that is preached transforms you. You need to understand that it doesn't just it's not just that you get new understanding. It's that the word actually has an effect that brings real change into your life. It is truly a miracle. It is not a natural occurrence. The word of God is powerful. The catechism also teaches that it builds you up in comfort. That's very important too. And sometimes we don't realize how important that is. We are sinners, redeemed sinners, but still sinners living in a fallen world. And we're quite uneasy creatures, aren't we? We're easily unsettled. It's, it's an uncomfortable place to be a sinner still in a fallen world who has come to Christ and who is in his kingdom. But the spirit works in us through, through the God, when the gospel is preached to us to produce more and more comfort in that gospel. We, are more, we more and more come to see the depth of God's love for us. We begin more and more to be sure of his salvation, more sure than we were before. Certain that he really has completely forgiven us in Christ. How many times have I spoken to people that were struggling? What we sang earlier in Psalm 103, that he's removed our sin for us, sins from us as far as the east is from the west. He really has given us eternal life. He really is working all things together for good in our lives. Do you believe that? You don't have comfort unless you believe that. When you hear the word preached about that, about even what I preached last week, how he uses trials in our life, the spirit works through that to give you real comfort so that as you experience those trials and struggles, you do trust God to be using them to work it all together for good so you can go forward. The Spirit keeps on revealing to us those things that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 2.9. The things that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man. The things which God has prepared for those who love Him. As the word of the gospel is preached, the Spirit enables you to see the love of God more and more. Certainly, uh, preaching in a book like the Song of Solomon that we did recently. That's what gives us comfort. And hope. Romans 5, 5 through 10 that I preached on recently testifies to us of this when it says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The Holy Spirit who causes us to see God's love. 
Verse 6 continues, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's the great comfort when we believe that. If that's true, he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, if even then when you were complete enemy of God and he came by his grace to reconcile you, then much more having been reconciled now that we're with God and that we love God, then how much more? You see, we shall be saved by his life. So for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Tremendous comfort in those words. Brothers and sisters, the gospel should become sweeter and sweeter to you as you go on and hear it preached over the years as you read the word of God. There is nothing better for your soul than to read the word of God, to sit down with the scriptures and to read the word and to look at what God has done and go through the whole Bible so that you see the grace of God and the power of God for salvation. More and more, you see the depth of God's love that is revealed in his word, the faithfulness of God. And that seeing and that embracing is the work of the Spirit of God in you. So you see that the Spirit works through the Word both to bring us to Christ as well as to build us up in Him. He takes the commandments of God and the gospel of God and He melds them to our lives so that they become part of us, so that we come to Christ and then grow in Christ. These commandments and this gospel is preached to you and the Spirit brings them into your heart so that you receive them and you live by them. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. I would say that we ought to be quite diligent then about receiving the word of God and about praying that God's Spirit will use it in our lives. Maybe we sometimes don't believe that He really will. But many who take up the word of God and begin diligently to receive it, to listen to it, to uh, listen to preaching diligently, begin to pray for God to bless them. They find that God does greatly and powerfully use the word in their lives. And that will be our subject next time about how we should approach the scriptures and diligently use the scriptures that they might be effective in our lives. But you see, ultimately, it is the Spirit of God who does the work, as we have seen today, of actually bringing the Word to us in a way that it changes us. So please stand and let's give thanks to Him for His saving work. Lord, Your saving work is variegated. There's many different things that You do to bring salvation to us. Certainly, You sent Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, But then you bring the message to us. You send a preacher. You send the word of God. And then by your spirit, you bring that word into us so that we believe it, so we receive it, so that we cannot deny it. We cannot push it off. And we thank you, O Lord, that 
the word has power to convince and to convert us and then to build us up in holiness and comfort through faith. We thank you, Lord, that the word does not fail to accomplish the purpose for which you send it. We pray, Lord, that we might see that power today. Father, you have told us that we are to pray that the word would be effective, that it would increase and that it would bring forth fruit. And we know, Lord, that the word itself does not do that, but it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes when your spirit works in us and opens our heart. So, Lord, we look to you to do that saving work. We pray that as we come to the scriptures to read and to seek your face, that we would pray to you and we would ask you to illumine us, to to cause us to be transformed by the word that you who spoke and said, let there be light would cause the light of your truth to shine in our hearts who are in the darkness. Father, we know that just as there was a great miracle when you said, let there be light and there was light at the beginning of creation, that there is an even greater miracle when you speak to a sinner and say, let there be light and there is light in the soul of a dark soul that was lost and ruined. Father, we thank you for the your, your power and grace that is evidenced in these ways. Please, Lord, bless us, minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.